Hello there and welcome back to another episode of Thanks Morris. I am Marie the SLP or Marie the Speech Language Pathologist and today we get to talk with Allison Smith, a speech language pathologist from Texas, who is going to tell us all about the world of pediatric feeding, pediatric swallowing, and early intervention. And of course, we're going to talk about some teletherapy too, because that is our world now as speech pathologists. I do want to say while we are here and sharing knowledge about these things and giving some milestones and tidbits and helpful hints, we are not giving direct medical advice. So if you do have concerns for your child or for a family member regarding uh, feeding, swallowing, early intervention, anything like that, make sure that you're consulting with your child's pediatrician, a doctor, or a speech-language pathologist for uh, an official evaluation or assessment. But without further ado, I know I'm ready to learn a lot from Allison, and I hope you are too. So let's get to talking. All right, friends, we have Allison here. Allison, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for um, what I already know is going to be a very informative conversation. Um, so welcome. Thanks so much, Marie, for having me. I'm so excited to be here and spread some more awareness about pediatric feeding and swallowing um, disorders in kiddos. Awesome. Um, okay, so let's go ahead. I want you to just give us a little intro because I want everybody to kind of know, um, you know, where you're at, kind of what got you into pediatric feeding. Um, you know, just just give us a little bit of a background. So like Marie said, I'm Allison. I'm a speech language pathologist. Currently, I work in early childhood intervention. Um, previously, I worked in a children's hospital and a private practice. Um, over the past four years or so, I've really committed my time discovering and researching all there is to know about feeding disorders in kids because ASHA's latest guidelines are saying that 30 to 80 percent of kids with developmental disorders are presenting with some type of feeding or swallowing disorder. And the more research you read, it's actually closer towards that 80 percent. Um, so it's just really discouraging when I see new grads coming out of school, not knowing anything about pediatric dysphagia and kind of seeing how these kids are going without services because there's no one qualified to meet their needs. Um, so, and I saw that in my own practice, whenever I got out of grad school, I had no experience with pediatric feeding and swallowing, but I was seeing so many kids on my caseload with these issues and you know, parents were getting upset that I didn't know how to treat them. I was getting upset because I didn't know how to treat them. Um, and, you know, not really be being given the support needed to confidently treat those kids. Um, so that's pretty much what I do in my free time um, is just take a ton of CEU courses and read all the articles because um, unfortunately, sometimes it falls on us as the clinician. We can't feel sorry for ourselves for not knowing the information or not being taught the information. We have to go out and seek it for ourselves. That's amazing. And I'm so, um, I'm glad that you mentioned like going out and seeking information because I know that sometimes, especially when you're um, in a very fast paced environment, it sometimes seems a little bit intimidating or like challenging to be like, I need to stop. I need to learn a little bit. Um, so I think it's a really great point just in general. But like you said, you know, we don't come out of grad school a lot of the times feeling 
very like um, confident with speeding and dysphagia. Some people I know do, um, and that's their strong suit. I know for myself, I still don't feel confident or competent in that area. So, um, you know, it makes me think about, I wonder how many of the kiddos on my caseload might actually have uh, some issues and some difficulties with swallowing. Cause I do see a lot of the times, you know, at snack time and things like that, um, we're having a little bit of a difficult time. Um, and I, I know you kind of talked about that 80%. Um, is that like the kind of the overall prevalence that you're seeing? Yeah. So again, on Ash's website, it does state 30 to 80%, but honestly, I don't know if I've ever, I've, I think I've seen one research article state the 30% stat, um, but I've seen multiple state the 80% one. Um, and just from an anecdotal perspective, I definitely would say about 50 to 75% of the kids on my caseload currently present with some type of feeding or dysphagia. Um, especially with kiddos with neurological impairment, with kids with cerebral palsy, it can be up to like 99%. Um, Anytime the muscles are affected, the swallowing mechanism, which is made up of a lot of muscles, is probably going to be affected as well. Um, so unfortunately, you know, in ECI, our kind of qualification standards are, and I'm sure in the school as well, you do a language test and mm -hmm. you see if they qualify and not all of us screen for feeding because we were never really taught to. We're taught to do an oral mech exam where we have them open their mouth, wiggle their tongue side to side. And then we move on, we kind of check the box. But um, that's why I think the parent interview is so important. Um, I'm not sure in the school setting, if y'all have that, you know, luxury, um, but really kind of covering all domains of a kid's daily routines. Yeah, I, I know I can't speak for all school based speech pathologists. I know in my district, we do a really great job of making sure that, um, you know, when we have uh, we do do a parent interview, or at least some form of a parent questionnaire, which is a very, especially at the preschool age, a very um, well-rounded questionnaire where we do touch on what meals look like at home. We do ask, you know, do they have any, um, what is, like, what the main foods they eat are? Do they have any difficulties with certain foods or textures or things like that? Um, and then when, if we do notice those things, or if we're observing the kiddo in the classroom at snack time and we notice those kinds of things where, you know, I think back to my hospital internship where I'm like, yeah, I remember doing like those um, informal observations when they were eating and when my patients were eating. Um, we will, you know, definitely, that's when we see in my situation, we're not, I can't write a goal for feeding. Um, I, I wish I could sometimes because like you said, I think it's, it's very closely tied um, with those communication things, you know, everything in this mechanism is very closely related. Um, but we will refer, you know, go talk to your pediatrician, please give them, give them this uh, report and show them that we notice these things or that you have these same concerns um, based on your interview. Um, but like I said, I can't speak for all, but I definitely think that I would advocate for school-based speech pathologists to make sure that they're in some way touching that so that way they can be addressed if it has to go to the medical side of things, that's fine, but get it addressed. And then just a short plug, I, and I <laughs> talked to you about this, Marie, before we got on here. Go for it. Um, I would recommend school-based speech-language pathologists to um, 
dig into the educational impact of feeding disorders. Um, Kristen West is a really great SLP who does a lot of work and advocacy in this area. Um, she's a part of the Meta SLP Collective and has a, an episode on the Swallow Your Pride podcast, specifically addressing uh, schools and dysphagia. So if you're a school SLP and you're interested in dysphagia or um, feel like that's a need, your kids, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, that they a just need like, that needs to be met. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a, need, a need that needs to be met. Um, check that out and see how you can advocate yeah. for that. Yeah. And I think I recently started following it's Met SLP Collective on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I recently started following them because I, I, now that I've been more involved with the Instagram world and meeting all these awesome speech language pathologists like yourself, I'm realizing how little I actually do know at this point about feeding and swallowing and how beneficial it will be for me to at least have a little bit more information, a little bit more knowledge. So that way, when I am thinking about these things during an evaluation, I'm, I'm coming from that place of just having, uh, again, that knowledge, um, even if it means I can't directly do something, I can indirectly do something, which is um, far better than doing nothing at all. That's exactly what I was going to say. Even just being able to get enough tools in your toolkit to be able to identify when there's an issue, even if you don't feel comfortable treating and your administration for some reason refuses you for you to treat or doesn't want to provide training for you to treat, which is another real possibility, mm -hmm. let's be honest. Um, being able to identify and refer is definitely much better than kind of just ignoring it and not knowing it's an issue. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and then you, we talked a lot about the prevalence. Did you have anything else you wanted to cover with that or we got it? I think that that's the main, I mean, if you go on ASHA's pediatric dysphagia webpage, there are a ton of stats about different populations. Um, but I think for SLPs, regardless of your setting, the most important statistic to know is that there's a ton of kids that have feeding and swallowing disorders, and I don't think we're identifying all of them. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and it's so interesting, too, because as I learn more about this and I've, you know, kind of, especially when getting ready for this podcast, I'm like, okay, I want to at least know, know a little bit. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I was kind of looking on ASHA for things. And then um, I also uh, just, I happened to follow this girl and she, no, uh, she's not a speech language pathologist on Instagram, but she just had a baby or she had a baby back in like November and uh, she's starting to introduce solids to him. And so she, she's been talking a lot on Instagram about how like they're doing this like 10 day like texture thing, but she's been talking about, you know, he's at this age where we're going to do this one and, and this food. And I'm like, oh, like, yeah, I kind of remember thinking about that in grad school. Like there's different ages for different things, um, just like developmentally, right? With language, there's different right. milestones and things like that. So I wanted to ask you more about what that, um, Kind of like what foods are given at what age? Yeah, and so just to reiterate, you know, anything said in this podcast is not medical advice. Every kid is so different. Um, the following milestones are just based on normative data. 
Um, we also have to not only look at a kid's age, but also um, if they do have a developmental disability, maybe we'll be looking more at the skill rather, rather than the age. Um, looking at their overall gross motor, looking at their oral motor. Um, so again, although these are going to have specific ages, it's not black and white. Um, so with that, on that note, um, up until six months of age, we want a child to be completely breast or bottle fed. At the six month mark, which some pediatricians will say four months, but really we're pushing more towards six months, six months just to have their gut microbiome a little more primed for solids. And also at that six month mark is when a lot of kids are able to sit up independently for a couple of seconds. Um, so then they have that good core stability for spoon feeding. So at six months, introducing some smooth, thin purees. Um, then at eight to 12 months, starting to introduce some open cup drinking, straw drinking, um, soft cubes, so like cubes of avocado, um, little soft potato cubes, um, thicker purees. Um, and then at that 12-month mark, doing, doing some single-textured food, so like maybe some bread or muffins, something that doesn't have um, a mixed texture in it. After that, from 11 to 15 months, you can start introducing those mixed textures, so that would be macaroni and cheese, chicken nuggets, crispy french fries, spaghetti and sauce. Um, and the reason why we want that mixed texture to be later is it's really tricky for a kid to be able to manage two different types of food at a time. So spaghetti would be kind of soft, a soft solid, and then mixed with the sauce, that's a puree. So being able to manage both of those at the same time would be really difficult for a younger child. Um, then from 15 to 18 months, we'll introduce hard munchables. So um, fruits with peels, a hard cookie, chips, um, and then after 18 months, they're really just refining their skills and um, really should be eating pretty much what the family is eating at that point. Again, these are all just norm, normative data. Um, every kid's different. But if you do have any concerns based on this data, I think it is important to talk to your pediatrician. You know, if your child is 18 months and they're only eating puree, um, that would be a time where I would suggest going to the pediatrician to see if you could get evaluated by a speech-language pathologist, and also sometimes an occupational therapist will also work with feeding. Yeah, no, and I'm glad that you made that note about, you know, this isn't, <laughs> we're not here to give the medical advice, we're just, this is kind of an overview and, um, and you know, meant for parents and speech-language pathologists to have a little bit more knowledge going in, but I like that, you know, we want to look at the skill rather than the age. And that's something I love about being a preschool speech language pathologist. That's a big thing that I just do. Um, and I think that that's important to remember for everyone, you know, what can we do <laughs> at this point? Um, so yeah, so thank you. There's a lot of good information and, um, I hope if you're taking notes, you had your pen and paper out because <laughs> that I'm, I'm definitely going to go back and listen and I can already see like a really good visual that I want to put up on my wall. Um, so you do, um, you're currently doing teletherapy as m many SLPs are right now. Were you doing teletherapy before COVID and all the shutdowns? 
We were actually already in the process prior to COVID to um, get teletherapy started because we cover such a huge area of Texas. Texas is really big, y'all. Um, I guess <laughs> California is too. Yeah. Um, but we carry, we cover a really big area. So we were already trying to get teletherapy implemented prior to COVID just to be able to reach all of our families um, and so that I'm not driving like 2,000 miles every week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So kind of. We were in the process, but it hadn't officially launched. We were probably like a week or two away from launching it. And then COVID hit. And then it was like, okay, guys, starting tomorrow, you're doing telehealth. Yeah. Um, so yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. Yeah. Um, and I know, you know, same for us, kind of. Kind of. In my district, some so some districts in California, the day after the school shut down, we're like, yep, you all are doing teletherapy. Some districts like mine were very conservative because they understood that there was, you know, um, all the confidentiality stuff, all the FERPA stuff, and um, the just the, the number of kids on our caseload for some of us. It's like, how, you know, how is this going to be effective? Um, but most of the speech pathologists in my district, like, we, you know, we're so grateful for all those free CEU courses, by the way, that came out when all this happened. Oh my gosh such good information. And so a lot of us jumped on that train of, okay, we're going to just take the courses we need. We're going to learn teletherapy. But in that, there was so much, you know, we all met as a, you know, all 30 SLPs met after that on Zoom and we're like, okay, is this, is this ethical? Um, you know, what? And then, you know, we have slippers. Can slippers be teletherapists? Like, so there was all this questioning and we were researching ASHA and so in talking to you and doing teletherapy with feeding possibly, you know, what is um, kind of what's the stance from the American Speech and Hearing Association on that? Yeah. So just to touch on a few points, just for semantics. So technically, ASHA prefers, prefers the term telepractice because it can encompass both the healthcare world and the school world. Um, you're going to hear me say teletherapy, telehealth. Um, I'm honestly not used to saying telepractice, but I just don't want people to be confused if they go to Ash's website and they see telepractice everywhere. It's basically all the same thing, just a little bit different verbiage. Um, so Ash's stance is that dysphagia evaluation and treatment can both be done via telehealth. Um, but it does reflect back to principle of ethics two, rule A, which is individuals who hold the certificate of clinical competence shall engage in only those aspects of the profession that are within the scope of their professional practice and competence considering their certification status, education, training, and experience. And I know that's so annoying that I read that. However, I feel like as SLPs were put into positions often where we feel like administrators, directors are making us see these kids or we're shamed if we don't see these kids. Um, So if that's ever happening to someone or you don't feel comfortable doing it over telehealth, if you see a couple of feeding and dysphagia kids in person, but you're new to it and you're not familiar with how to coach parents, bring this to your director, supervisor, whatever. Um, It's your license at the end of the day. um, And you need to kind of stand up for yourself and use the resources that ASHA does have for you to be able to advocate for your practice and for your license. 
Yeah, I'm honestly glad you read it um, <laughs> because, you know, it's sometimes <clears throat> it's important to remember that, like you said, we have a license that we, you know, and I think about my position in the schools, for instance. Yeah, we have credentials. We have teachers credentials in California to um, be working in the schools. And sometimes our districts don't always understand the scope of our practice. And so sometimes, you know, if I feel like they're asking something of me that I don't feel like I really, not that I can, can't do something, but I don't know if, you know, ethically, if based on what my license says and what, you know, my clinical, um, certificate of competence says I can do that. We always are able to bring what Asha says to our, uh, to the powers that be, I guess you could say, um, and let them know. And just, and it's all about education. It's not about, you know, throwing it in their face and saying, well, no, I can't do it. Cause look, it's about, okay, well, can you help me interpret then what Asha is saying? Because I don't feel comfortable. Um, and so no, I'm glad you read it. Cause I think it's good for us to hear and to, to remember Sometimes it's like out of sight, out of mind. So you're asked to do something in a fast-paced environment and you're like, okay, sure. Um, and you're a little bit scared. It's good to just be like, wait, let me go check. Um, or let me go listen to Allison say that again on the podcast because maybe maybe the way we're interpreting it is different or maybe I need to just trust my gut. So no, yeah, I think- for sure. And I think, you know, we get our C's and employers see that and they're like, oh, you're a fully certified SLP. You can do anything. Mm -hmm. Like if someone tomorrow was like, hey, can you go work in the skilled nursing facility? I would have a panic attack. Like yeah. one, I wouldn't do it, but also I would not do it because I know it wouldn't be ethical. Yes. Um, and I really like how in this um, ethics rule, they highlight education, training, and experience. They don't just say like, if you don't feel comfortable, period. So if your employer does come back and say like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's in your scope, you can say, well, then can you provide me training? Because that's yes. what this says right here, that I need yes. to have appropriate training and education before I can, I'm happy to do it. You know, I always kind of pull that card, like, you know, mm -hmm. going in open, hey, I'm really interested in doing this, however, X, Y, and Z. And that tends to be a lot more um, well-received rather than like, like you said, Marie, hey, I can't do this. Yeah. So long. Bye. Yeah. Like, that's, like, that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah. No. It's the same thing we would want for our parents of our, our clients or families of our clients to do, right? If they don't feel comfortable with something, um, we would want them to come to us and ask for the supports rather than do something out of, you know, and, and still be afraid or not feel confident in doing it. I always advocate, you know, I tell my parents, like, I will advocate for you to get the supports you need, but you need to ask me um, because I don't always know what it is that you're lacking. And same thing, you know, if, if I don't feel competent with something, I'll ask my district or, you know, whoever my employer is at the time to provide that training um, and to make sure that I'm doing the best job I can. Because not only, yes, we have an ethical, you know, we have ethics that we're upholding and I know a lot of great SLPs that do that so well. Um, and I'm so inspired by them, but then we also have, you know, just human, um, you know, rights that we're, you know, promoting and advocating for, and we need to make sure that, um, we're given the supports to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm really happy you pointed out, um, the human aspect because, um, I, I didn't point that out and that is just as important or more important than in a three sentence 
uh, word phrase paragraph from Asha. So yeah. Thank you for reiterating that. Oh, no. Sure. Sure. That's why, that's why I like to have these conversations because I feel like you said something that inspired me to say that and we can, you know, help provide that, uh, just that foundation and, and understanding for people that, that are like, oh, so this is what the ethics mean. I, I think I remember, you know, talking about ethics in um, undergrad and grad school and it just seemed like, and I will be honest, it seemed like so much literature and like, why this is just so many words and so many big words. Um, and you know, think, do you know who Dr. Grower is? Have you? I don't. Oh, okay. He's just, he's my professor for dysphagia and he wrote, uh, one of the textbooks that go through certain programs. He helped write it. So I'm just curious if you do. I'm not trying to name drop, but <laughs> no, you can name drop. Is he more in the adult world? Yeah. Yeah, okay. definitely yeah. more in the adult world. It's so Crazy split, how huh? niche. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. if someone tomorrow, like if my grandma had dysphagia, I'd be like, um, I'd be calling all my SLP friends. Like I literally know very minimal about adult dysphagia. Yeah. So um, it is crazy how much information is in both of those worlds and it's, yeah. how much does and doesn't overlap. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true because like I told you, I don't feel very competent with pediatric feeding and dysphagia. I feel, I would say I feel more competent, not that I, not at an expert level by any means. I'm still way, much, uh, what do you call it, a no, novice or amateur, but, um, <laughs> you know, he, in that he was the, you know, the main dysphagia professor for me and uh, very much in the adult world, but he was also our ethics professor and, um, he did a good job of helping us understand what those ethics really meant and making them very relatable and relevant to us at the time being students. Um, because then you get into the world and you're working in your clinical fellowship or three years later and you're like, oh, this is, you know, you, you can see it. You're like, that's not ethical. That is not okay. Or wow, like they're doing such a great job of upholding those ethics. So but it, it kind of makes more sense if you think of it on that human level. Um, so yeah. Sure. Um, so going into maybe just an overview of what it looks like for you when you get, um, especially with telehealth or however you, <laughs> however you say yeah. it. I know I'm like, yeah, there's so many ways to say it, teletherapy. Um, but what does it kind of look like when you're, you know, just starting out with a new client? Yeah. So prior to going into what I do, I want to give credit to um, Dr. Georgia Malandraki. She's out of Purdue and she is the lead on the I eat lab and herself and her team have been so generous sharing all of their resources with um, telehealth and pediatric dysphagia. They actually started studying this back in 2016. That's the earliest paper I could find. So sorry if there's an earlier one. That's, that's the one I saw. Um, but they have one in uh, 2016 that talks about um, evaluating children with cerebral palsy. Um, and then they have another case study one. I think the cerebral palsy one focuses more on assessment and then the case study focuses more on treatment. Um, but they found that asynchronous, so not at the same time, clinical swallowing eval evaluations using standardized tools and um, the, there was a face-to-face -face and then a recording. And two SLPs kind of reviewed those tapes. And they came to the same conclusions regardless. 
Um, so I just want to point that out that, you know, for people who are still hesitant that telehealth isn't good for pediatric dysphagia, um, there is some research out there and really quality research as well. Um, and if you are interested in doing telehealth with dysphagia clients, um, they have a really awesome step-by-step -step process on how to get that going. So a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about now um, was inspired from them. So again, I just want to give them credit. Um, so before starting, you want to ideally have a HIPAA compliant platform. They did come out. I, I'm not sure if this was from ASHA directly or if it was at the state level. So be sure to check with your state, check with your organizations. Um, but because of this COVID crisis, um, the penalties for a HIPAA compliant platform have been waived. So you theoretically can use FaceTime on your iPhone or Skype, which I don't think is HIPAA compliant. Um, ideally, I think, again, for ethical reasons, I would use a HIPAA compliant platform. Um, I think a lot of people don't want to use it because they cost money. But at the end of the day, it's our duty to respect our clients' privacy and protect them. Um, but I'll get off the ethics soapbox. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm really passionate about ethics, apparently. No, it's good. Um, it's good things. <laughs> also, an SLP must be licensed in the state that they're physically located in and the state that the client is in. So we've actually had a few situations where um, a child went um, with his family back to Mexico during the COVID um, crisis. Um, well, you know, then it goes into a whole other issue about it being international. And, you know, we've had some families go to stay with aunt in California. Well, I'm not licensed in California, so I can't see those kids. However, again, because of the COVID crisis, some states have changed some of these rules. Um, so check with your state, check with ASHA. I think ASHA has like a state by state list that you can click on and see exactly what their stance are, um, on licensing and all that good stuff. Um, so just again, always protect your license. Don't do anything because you're, you've been told to do it. Um, make sure that it's legal. Um, we always, another kind of issue is insurance coverage. Um, so Luckily, I'm in ECI, which is Texas version of early childhood intervention, and our feeding and swallowing code is covered. Um, so we're allowed to provide feeding and swallowing over um, teletherapy, and um, there's no kind of stipulations with it. However, I have heard from quite a few SLPs via Facebook groups that certain insurances are not covering feeding and swallowing treatment um, via telehealth. So again, if you're not in the early intervention setting and you're in a private practice, hospital, whatever, um, just be sure to check the insurance and make sure, um, and usually those practices have that in place that someone is checking those things, but if a parent comes to you, just be prepared for that question. Um, so after all those logistics happen, and there's a lot more, again, go to the Purdue um, IEAT lab for a step-by-step -step situation. It's really great. Um, we get prior written notice, and that might be ECI specific. I'm not 100% sure, um, but essentially it's me emailing a document through DocuSign to the family saying, my name's Allison, I'm a speech pathologist, we're going to be doing the session on this day at this time. These are the assessment tools I'll be using, and um, 
I'll be using clinical observation, yada, yada, yada. If you agree to this, sign it and send it back. We have to have that signed prior to doing the eval. So even if a parent has texted me, called me saying, yeah, great. I can't do the eval until I have that paper. Um, we also have, a, have to have a consent for telehealth um, to make sure that a parent is comfortable with us doing um, you know, therapy evaluations through this platform. And there definitely are a lot more considerations with telehealth um, in terms of privacy. You know, um, my fiance is also working home from because of COVID. So obviously we're in completely separate rooms and he's upstairs, I'm downstairs, but I do have to let my families know, hey, like there is someone else in my home. I have headphones in. He can't hear any of the information that you're giving me, but he might hear something I say to you. Are you okay with that? Um, you know, we really just try to make them as aware as possible about any type of breach of security, um, even though he has headphones on as well, and he has, hasn't heard anything. But I just, we have to let families know of any possibility of um, their information possibly being spread. Um, but again, I think if you do your due diligence, due diligence, that shouldn't be a problem. Um, but also, too, we have to consider the people who are in their home. You know, I, I have a lot of families who have difficulty with their mother-in-law, and they don't want their mother-in-law's opinion. Um, and so if I call in and I see that there's other adults in the home, or even if I don't see adults in the home, I'll always ask, hey, like, is there anyone else in your home today? Are you okay with them hearing suggestions I give you? Or them hearing the information you're giving me. Um, and we usually just have to have that conversation once in the very beginning. And I usually do it over the phone prior to even doing a telehealth session, just so that we're all in agreement of what that can all look like. Um, so yeah, after all that good business, then, and we're, we're green light go for doing an evaluation, I'll text the parent and say, hey, do you mind sending me a video. Again, we have to have consent to talk to them via text, email, etc. Um, there's so many hoops, man. <laughs> um, I'll say, hey, can you send me a video of what a typical mealtime looks for you guys? Because sometimes, as you may know, kids do not always perform during the evaluation slot. <laughs> you know, it is an hour, hour and a half of time. And two-year-olds, one-year-olds, Babies can be very um, opinionated. So um, I like to have a video prior to, so just in case I get into the evaluation and the kid is asleep. Um, uh, actually, if they're asleep, we can't do the evaluation. If they fall asleep 30 minutes into the evaluation, then I still have enough information to be able to um, complete, the complete the evaluation. Um, Let's see. Another thing that I'll do is I'll retrieve all the medical records, either from the PCP. Um, we get a lot of uh, NICU babies into our program, so I'll contact the NICU SLP, um, either phone um, or email. Again, we have to have consent to do all those things as well. Um, but, you know, really doing a thorough medical review to make sure that I can do my due diligence to continue the plan of care as best as I can. Um, whenever we start the session, I always make sure that the family is connected to Wi-Fi. Um, you know, we're not responsible for any data charges that they may accrue. 
Um, some families say that they have unlimited data and I, I'm sure to document that in my note just in case they ever come back um, and are upset with a, a phone bill that's too high. And of course, no parent would ever do that intentionally. Um, but I always like to make sure like, hey, we're not responsible for any charges. Um, but our company has been really great about providing um, like mobile Wi-Fi devices. And um, I'm, I'm really blessed to be working for the company that I do. Um, and then we'll talk about connectivity strength. Um, is the quality good? Can you see me? Can you hear me? Is it loud? Is it not? Do we have feedback? Um, and then the final one is really more specific to dysphagia feeding. Um, I ask if they are CPR certified um, and if, or if anyone in the home is CPR certified. And if they're not, then I need to make sure that I know CPR enough to be able to coach them until either we can get a paramedic on the phone or 911 or a paramedic arrives. Um, so one more thing I do is uh, confirm the home address that they're at because in the case of an emergency and I do need to send um, medical professionals to the home, I need to know exactly where they're at. You know, if I call 911 here in Austin, but my family lives out in LaGrange, they need to know where to direct the ambulance. Um, so, I mean, usually by some point I know what their house looks like. So I'll just do a quick like, hey, you're at the Turtle Bend house, right? Okay, cool. Um, and then like this morning, I had a family who was in a completely different city. So uh, making sure, again, just to get that address so we know where they're located in case something happens, which it shouldn't, but we always like to be prepared. <laughs> um, so then moving into the actual assessment, um, we'll do an interview, um, maybe a certain questionnaire. There's a ton of different questionnaires out on the internet. Make sure they're like, like criterion referenced, norm referenced. Uh, make sure they're well researched. Um, we'll do maybe the ITSI flow test, which is the Inter International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative. Um, and this is for kids who are on any type of thickener. So if they were given thickener um, in the NICU, but then with COVID crisis, they ran out of their thickener, so they're trying something new. I need to make sure that those consistencies are matched. Um, so ITSE is a really good way to do that. And there are so many CEUs out there on ITSE, and you could also Google it because Google rocks. Um, so look into that if you work with dysphagia. Surely, I hope you know about it if you already work with kids with dysphagia, but you never know. It's relatively new-ish. Um, and during the assessment, obviously, we'll, throughout that parent interview, throughout my observation, throughout the video I was given prior, hopefully, um, you know, talking about any further referrals that may be needed. So if I suspect a tongue tie, obviously, I mean, that's when I don't feel comfortable really I mean, I don't diagnose tongue ties, but I don't feel comfortable leading a parent to believe that there's a tongue tie because I can't see as well as if I were in person. But based on the behaviors, based on what I can see, I can say, oh, you know, the function is impacted in this way. Um, it looks this way. Maybe let's send you to a, a specialized pediatric ENT or dentist. And I say specialized because Tongue ties are a hot commodity right now, I feel. It's a very hot topic, and 
I think we jump to cutting sometimes. I don't want to get too controversial on this, no. on this, on this episode, but <laughs> I do feel like we need to do better with tongue ties. And that's all I'm going to say. So I'm always sure to refer to a very reputable um, pediatric ENT. It's very important to go to someone pediatric specific because they have the most training in that. And um, you could also go to a oromyologist who has training in that um, to really assess how these ties are impacting the function of feeding. Um, so yeah, just a little plug for yeah. tongue ties and no. being just very cautious when recommending clipping something that might be healthy tissue and might not even be causing in this. There's actually a lot of good research lately on um, kind of the diagnosis of tongue ties and um, the impact on speech and feeding development. Um, I'll, I'll, send, I'll send that to you, Marie, and maybe yeah. you can add it to the, I don't know if you do like a description of the I podcast. do. Okay. That would be, that would be awesome. And, you know, just really quick, I don't mean to interrupt you, but um, mm -hmm. tongue tie, it is a hot topic. And I, in the last two years have had so many parents come to me, like, do you think he has tongue tie? And I'm like, for, I mean, by the time I have my kids, you know, they're three, um, three to five. And so I'm like, well, let me, let me look. Um, I mean, I have like a vague kind of understanding of like what it looks like, how it impacts their speech and their swallow or their uh, feeding. But, you know, I'll watch them during snack and I'll, I'll listen to them. You know, obviously they come to speech and I'm like, it's not impacting their intelligibility. It's not impacting their ability to make any sound. They're eating. <laughs> Let me tell you, <laughs> like they're happy. They're eating, you know, but I think what happens and I, and not, not with every parent, I think, um, what I notice the most, especially in the schools, is parents, they make friends with each other, which is awesome, and they have this great community, and especially for my kids that are in special education, they, the parents, they help each other. They help each other learn, and it's really beautiful, and we push that. I mean, we kind of, you know, try to teach them, like, find community, but then they start talking about certain things that are the hot topics, so right now it might be tongue ties, um, and, uh, you know, I'll notice that or I'll notice a big one too is, um, medication for like attention and stuff. And, you know, they come to us like, should we do this? And we're like, you know, we, first of all, I can't make that call. I can't even make that recommendation. I have to say, you need to go talk to your doctor. Um, but I, yeah, with parents, sometimes they want to just jump on that tongue tie and, and I'm always, again, like, let's do some research. Let's look, you know, um, so I would love that. I would love research on that for me and I will definitely include it in the summary. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I love ECI cause it's all about parent empowerment and parent education. And I think at the end of the day, parents are just trying to figure out how to yeah. help their kid. Um, yeah. so if we're seeing a bunch on social media about, you know, I see all these headlines, like, seven-year-old was completely nonverbal, got tongue-tie clipped, and now they're yeah. speaking in phrases, or now they're completely, quote-unquote, typical. So I think some of those, like, very strong statements and, mm -hmm. like, um, sexy stories is what I call them, yeah. like news grabbers, um, can be really tricky to navigate. Yeah. Um, another resource is um, the First Bite podcast. They have an entire episode on tethered oral tissues. Um, that's another one we can add to the show notes. And um, 
It's led by Aaron Forward and Michelle Dawson, and they do a really good job going through all the research on tongue ties and kind of how they've interpreted the research and um, how it impacts us as clinicians and our decision making. Um, so that's a really good, um, I feel like that one could be great for parents or SLPs just yeah. to get more information for those parents who are wanting um, to really dig into what, what the research is saying about it. Yeah. Um, okay. Definitely. I'll move into treatment now. If yes. that's okay. Yes, please. Cool. So I've done my assessment. I've identified the needs of the kid, whether that be um, oral motor deficiencies or like actual dysphagia. In that case, I would definitely need like the modified barium swallow study report or the fees. That one's a little more rare <laughs> in pediatrics, um, but kind of telling me exactly where the deficit is so that I can address that deficit. Um, I'm really big on not just throwing some random exercises at a kid if they're not going to be helpful. Um, so that's another soapbox for another day, maybe, or maybe it'll come up in this part. Um, so in ECI, we do something called the coaching model and the coaching model composes of five parts. So we have joint planning, observation, action and practice, reflection and feedback and conclusions and future planning. Um, those kind of go together. So I'm just going to go through each briefly. So one, joint planning. This is where the family and I come together. We review what's happened since our last visit. Um, we build rapport. You know, I, I really try not to just make our sessions about feeding. Like, I, I want to know about the whole family. I need to know what's happening in the home because sometimes that can affect the feeding. Um, if mom has been up for all night for 10 hours with a kid who's been throwing up, let's not work on feeding today. Let's just talk. You know, am I going to bill for that? No, but am I going to provide education and be a listening ear? Sure. Um, so I, I think that's really important. I feel like sometimes there's such a push for productivity and, you know, get in, get out, go, go, go. But at the end of the day, we're working with humans and moms and moms that are scared and babies who are crying and that's a lot. Um, so I really think it's important to add that human aspect to therapy. Um, so on that note, we will, um, you know, kind of discuss what's been stressful over the past week or two, however long it's been since I've seen them. Um, what obstacles have they come across? And I always make to, I always make sure to ask what went well. So we don't all only want to focus on kind of what, what their, like what the difficulties were. Yeah. 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 No. Like I'm, what, what the hurdles were. Yeah. Um, but I also want to say like, you know, tell me something that so-and-so did so good with. Um, yeah. Tell me about your best feeding experience. Tell me, and again, tell me about your worst feeding experience. We want to know the whole gamut. Um, but I, I think sometimes as speech pathologists, we go in there to solve a problem and we just want to know the problem and fix it and go. Um, and I like to think that's not the case, but I've seen it and I've been guilty of it, you know, with sure. large caseloads. Um, you know, sometimes we're just surviving. But at the end of the day, especially when working with feeding, 
um, we have to have a really big human component to it. Um, and there's also a big counseling component to feeding um, and working with moms who might be might have postpartum depression. Am I directly treating the postpartum depression? No, but am I going to be a supportive listener? And am I going to refer to an appropriate provider? Yeah. Um, am I going to talk to her about how her child's feeding may directly relate to that depression? Yes, because that is in our scope of practice because it's talking about um, communication or um, swallowing disorders and how that's affecting the family dynamic. So that's, that's within our scope of practice. Now, if mom talks about her other kids and um, her job, that is not within my scope of practice. I can sit there and listen, um, but I can't provide you know, ideas, therapeutic techniques to help her manage those areas of her life. Um, that would be a different professional. Uh, we're really blessed that we have a counselor on our team um, who's really awesome. So I'm thankful for that and definitely utilize her. Um, and so back to joint planning, we will, you know, identify kind of our biggest struggle and I'll ask the parent, you know, what do you want to work on today? Is this a session where you just need to, you just need me to listen to you? Do you want to try some therapy today? What, what do you want that to look like? I'm not here to like push an agenda. Um, like, yes, I need to get my productivity, but I also need to be there. Um, so they'll say, okay, yeah, I really want to work on um, chewing today. Great. Let's work on chewing. Um, so again, very family-centered. Um, so I'll say, okay, let's work on chewing. I want to observe for five to 10 minutes um, you doing a snack time with little Jimmy. <laughs> and um, you know, I'll tell them, okay, I'm going to watch. I'm going to take notes. And um, after about five or 10 minutes, I'll get your attention and we'll talk about a strategy. Okay, great. So I'll watch the family, I'll, you know, take notes on positioning, I'll take notes on kind of what language is being used, what's mom saying to the child, or dad, I always forget about dad, sorry dads, <laughs> um, what is, what's the child telling us, and if they're um, minimally verbal, what is their body telling us, um, what foods are being presented? How are they being presented? So um, really kind of dissecting all of those pieces. And after those five, 10 minutes, they'll say, hey, like, I have an idea. Can we try something? And they'll say, yeah, sure. And I'll say, hey, I noticed how he did this. Why do you think he did that? Why do you think he threw his food off the table? And I'll hear, oh, he's just so stubborn. And I'm like, he does have a big personality. However, do you think it could be another reason? Do you think it may not just be he's stubborn? What else could he be telling you? And I feel like asking those kind of leading questions and not just going in and saying, oh, hey, he threw food. You need to try this. Because that's invalidating what mom has already tried. Um, so we need to kind of acknowledge, hey, I saw that you tried this. That was a really great idea. How do you think it worked? And oh man, like, yeah, it didn't work. It hasn't worked. I'm like, okay, how can we modify it to make it new? How can we change it? And sometimes they'll come up with an idea on their own. And that's my ultimate goal. I want to ask 
enough questions so that they can get to the solution or they can come up to a solution without um, me providing the solution. Um, I never want to be seen as like a savior. That's not my job. My job is to empower parents to be able to identify what their kids are doing and how they can uh, manage that and how they can problem solve. Um, and so that kind of already led into the action and practice. So that's the third step of the coaching model. So I'll say, hey, instead of maybe giving him 30 M&Ms on the plate, sometimes that can be a little visually overwhelming. Have you ever tried a new food? And they're like, oh yeah, I've tried sushi. And I'm like, did you like sushi? They're like, no. And I'm like, okay, what if I came over and put 30 pieces of sushi on your plate? How would that make you feel? They're like, oh my gosh, I can't stand the smell. It's so big. Like, ew, it's gross. It's like in circles and they're squishy and whatever. So I'm like, yeah. So how do you think little Jimmy is feeling whenever we put 30 carrots on his plate? Like that, the orange is a bright color. It's new. They're kind of like wet on the outside. Um, fortunately, carrots don't have a big smell, but sometimes there are foods that do have a big smell. Um, so then I'll say, okay, how about we put just one piece of the new food and then we can put one little piece of something that Jimmy already likes. Um, and so then I'll allow them to practice that and I'll observe. Um, and usually I try to give them like two or three different strategies. So I'll say, okay, I want y'all to go to practice that. I'm going to take some more notes for five, 10 minutes, and then we'll reconvene. So we kind of just repeat that process. Um, when I first started telehealth, I felt like I was barking at parents the whole time, like, uh, uh, no, hey, try this. And we weren't getting anything done because I was interrupting them every two seconds. Um, so I feel like this has been a more collaborative situation because I can also get their feedback, which leads into the next part. So after, you know, one or two rounds of this, I can say, hey, how did you feel about doing that strategy of only placing one on their plate? Um, how did that make you feel? Do you think that's doable? Do you hate it? Do you love it? Um, and I always enc encourage parents to be 100% honest. I tell them, you know, if you don't tell me that you don't like this strategy, I can't give you a new one. Um, so if you don't like something, just tell me. I'm not going to get my feelings hurt. Um, and I'm here for you guys. And so during that section, we'll really talk about the strategies, review the strategies, kind of discuss the pros and cons of each strategy and how we can implement them um, throughout the day. So, okay, what would this look like at breakfast time versus dinner? You know, maybe breakfast is just the little kid and mom. Maybe dinner is the whole family. So how can we alter these strategies to fit all of these different scenarios? What about when they go to a restaurant? What's that going to look like? Um, because they're not going to just give you one piece of macaroni. Maybe it looks like asking the waiter for an extra plate so that mom can just put one piece on the extra plate. So really um, trying to problem solve any situation that can kind of derail our strategy. Um, and then the last part is just overall conclusions or future planning. So we'll say, okay, he did so good today when we just put one on the plate. Maybe in the future what we'll try is we can put two on the plate and we can gradually increase to see if it's, um, we can kind of discover if it's a visual overstimulus that he's reacting to. Is it a smell component? Um, 
maybe we need to do a sensory profile with OT. Um, so maybe part of my plan will be to email OT to complete a sensory profile. Um, so that's kind of our last section of our coaching model is really um, kind of bringing it all together and how are we going to plan for our next session and what steps do each of us need to take to make those steps happen. Oh, that just sounds like, I, I just love that it's so family centered um, because I'm, you know, I don't know for people that have listened to multiple episodes of my podcast, they know that I'm very big on par parent empowerment. Um, you know, I took some initiative with other preschool SLPs a year ago and asked to go get Hannon certified. So we were, you know, able to kind of facilitate those parent roles in child speech and language development. And I, um, I think it's something that I took away from grad school, just having that heart for parents to feel like they can do the job we do. But then also, like you said, sometimes it's not going to be as important to work on trying a new food in a session than it is to sit and talk with mom about how she didn't get sleep or, you know, how hard the week was, um, that she maybe feels emotionally drained because if she, if parents are in that mental zone or that, you know, feel at peace with things, then their kiddos probably don't um, because they can read that energy and they're not going to be in a zone to learn or to want to. It's not as engaging. It's not as um, calm. So I think that's so important. And I, I love that you touched on it so well, because it's a good thing to remember whether you're in the medical field and you are doing, trying to get all that productivity. Um, if you're sitting in an IEP meeting, you know, and it's supposed to be over, but a parent has a lot on their chest, or if you're in a teletherapy session and you have one in 30 minutes and you're like, well, I got to get stuff done. It's so much more effective to take a step back and to just have that area of support. Um, so I just thank you for sharing that because it's, it's really important to remember um, in these times of go, 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 right? Yes, especially with all the things happening in the world right now, parents have a lot on their mind and although the needs of their child are always coming first, yeah, sometimes it's difficult to process everything that's happening at once. Yeah. Um, so I think especially now more than ever, it's important to talk about if the parents bring it up um, and they say that it's a concern or it's weighing on them or it, they feel like it's impacting their parenting or um, how they're feeding their child or whatever that may look like. Um, again, just giving them the support that they need, whether that be for me as a professional or, again, referring them to someone else that's better um, fit to talk about those things. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Um, and, you know, talking about, you know, maybe some flexibility that you have to have with your sessions on a session-by-session -session basis with the families. Um, what do you do? You've mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you know, if you do have a kiddo that falls asleep 30 minutes or 10 minutes into the session, what do you do with, or they're highly distracted or things like that? What are some, some uh, hurdles that you've overcome that you can kind of speak on? <laughs> yeah. So the following falling asleep one is tricky because we really have to in, in the time on our note um, for when they fell asleep. So if I have an hour session and it's, 1030 and the kid fell asleep. So I'll put in my note 10 to 1030. We did X, Y, and Z. Um, but then I'll still give mom that extra 30 minutes to talk about 
you know, strategies or um, hurdles that they've experienced over the week with those strategies or um, any other concerns relating to her kid that she may want to talk about. Um, I've had a lot of families talk about autism lately and what are the signs of autism. So, um, you know, those are the conversations that we can have. You know, sometimes it's more of our therapy is with the parents. Um, and I always tell parents that I'm, you're the therapist right now. And even whenever I'm in the home with the coaching model, the parent is the therapist. Yeah. I am coaching them. I'm teaching them how to be a speech therapist. Um, my goal is for not, not for me to go in there and to fix their kid. Again, my goal is to teach them how to recognize what their kid is telling them and how they can come up with solutions on their own. Um, so I honestly, and I know this, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, she's so amazing. And that's not true. But I, I really don't have behavioral problems ever. I, and I, it's not because I'm a fantastic therapist. I think it's because I make it family-centered. I don't make it about my agenda. I don't say, hey, Jimmy, we're going to do these three worksheets, and then we have to read this book, and then we have to wash the baby, and then we have to play with these plastic animals in a barn. Right. Like, I don't do that because it's not functional. Um, so I make every session in a routine. And sometimes that is playtime routine. Um, but, of course, a feeding therapy, that's going to either be during snack, lunch, breakfast. Um, but I, I think that's why I don't tend to have that hurdle is, you know, if the kid gets distracted and walks away for a second, that's mom and I's time to think of a strategy to get him back. And then usually by the time we're done talking about a strategy, the kid's already back because they yeah. want to play for yeah. the most part. Obviously, there are some kids who that's what we're working on. Um, but I'm really big about not forcing a kid to do something that they don't want to do. As communication experts, we need to respect the communication that they're giving us. Yeah. If they want to line up their cars, I'll sit next to them or I'll tell mom to sit next to them. Let's line up cars with them. That's what they want to do. And we can work from that. Let's, let's meet the child where they're at and try to push it just a smidge further. And that's where we're going to see progress. Not by strapping them in a high chair, strapping them to a seat, getting our worksheets about butterflies when the kid has never seen a butterfly and talking about butterflies. Like that doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. And it's not functional. It's not going to impact their everyday life. Um, so in terms of behavior, I don't tend to have that hurdle. Um, kids falling asleep, that happens, but we've already addressed that. Another one I do have, though, is kids get distracted by me. Like, they're so excited um, to see me because it's been so long. And I'm so, you know, I'm like, yay, oh, my gosh, it's you. Like, yeah. you know, it's like a mutual excitement. And, you know, obviously, you know, that's not to toot my own horn. I think they're also excited that parents are giving them a screen. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably <laughs> more where the excitement comes from. But I like to think that they're a little bit excited to see me as well. Oh, um, for sure. <laughs> But sometimes in that case, um, I will either have, I'll either turn off my camera, which gets a little tricky. I'll, I'm always sure to document that in my notes. So I'll say like, kid was really distracted by me. Um, I turned off my camera when I was just observing, or I turned off my camera when um, mom was explaining a whatever. Um, 
just so I'm sure, you know, for teletherapy, we do have to be able to see them the whole time. They have to be able to see us the whole time. But I will say, even whenever I'm in the home, if I feel like a kid's getting distracted by me, I'll like go hide in a closet and just listen, um, which probably sounds very bizarre to a school SLP. I'm sorry. I'm like, you know, don't have that experience. I, but I will go push into classrooms and hide. Oh, like, perfect. Okay, I'll pull cool. a partition and I'll be like, okay. Okay, awesome. I was like, wow, that's probably sounds so bizarre. No, that I'm I get it. Closet. Okay, cool. Um, so sometimes, again, I'll document my note. Hey, they were distracted. I turned off my camera. Um, and then I'm sure to like reappear when mom has a question or if I need to demonstrate something. Um, so I have like toys in my cabinets. I have a baby doll. So if I'm doing infant feeding, I'll kind of show the parent what to do with my baby doll. Um, some kids who are really, um, you, you can kind of use it to your advantage if they are interested in you. Like I have blocks. Most kids have blocks, so we'll like build blocks together, even though I'm not physically there. Yeah, I can be like, my turn. And mm -hmm. it's so cute. Sometimes kids will try to like reach through the screen to grab my blocks. I'm like, yeah, that's not quite how it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those, those are the main hurdles that I've, and obviously technical difficulties. That has mm -hmm. to be, how did I forget? I that's know, definitely huh? the biggest hurdle. Um, and, and that's just going to be a lot of working with your IT department. I feel like after doing this for a couple of months, you know, I've learned tips and tricks along the way of how to um, kind of manage those. So I mean, when in doubt, just kill the app and reopen it. That usually solves it like 80% of the time. Yeah. Um, if a parent can't get a connection because of their Wi-Fi or whatever, I'll recommend that they turn off Wi-Fi on all of their, their other devices. Um, and that sometimes helps. If, it, if I can't see them and I can't really hear them, we have to end the session. And then in that case, I'll do a phone call. But of course, I'll write a non-billable note for that, just like okay. a contact note. So that wouldn't count for therapy. And we would reschedule whatever session we had for today yeah no they sound I mean it's cute to think like I'm sure they're just as excited to see you as they would be as Thanks, screen, I think. <laughs> um, but I I totally have that you know I'll walk into a classroom to grab a student and they're like oh, Miss M you know but I'm like last time we ended our session you know you weren't you weren't having it remember <laughs> but uh, we all I joke with the teachers like they're just excited to get out of cl the class right. <laughs> or to break you know they I've got one little guy who he's funny he's like I call him the phone a friend kid because if he's in a like a center in the classroom or in speech and he doesn't want to do something he'll ask for his other friends so he'll be like can I talk to can I talk to Sarah and we're like nobody but he'll do that he'll be like I want I want Miss Hennon I want my teacher and or vice versa he'll ask for me when he's in class and I'm not even in there. Oh my god. So those kids I'm like, no, they just don't want to see me. They want to get out of class. But but no, I think there's something special about being a speech language pathologist. I think especially because you're so child you you follow the child's lead and it sounds like you do a great job of that and coaching that and teaching parents how to do that. And um I think when they know that we're there to they have like this understanding of we're helping them, but we're, we're not there to put all these demands on them. Like we under, you know, I see so many great SLPs that just understand that too many demands are, they're frustrating and we're trying to work on something, you know, we're trying to work on something so um, just 
that something that helps their quality of life in such a great way when we talk about communication and feeding and uh when we get them engaged and enjoying it it's you know they remember that so they know the people that are kind of there to like have that fun with them so yeah i always tell parents that if a kid is you know running away when i get there or upset then it's not that the kid has done something wrong it's i've done something wrong <laughs> i haven't established enough rapport i'm putting too many demands and i think even me just like modeling that language of okay rather than let's rather than talking about what the kid is doing wrong let's be a little introspective and see how we can change our behavior um and see if that makes a difference and obviously there's there are going to be times when working with a two-year-old that they might have a big reaction to something that might not be that big of a deal um but they're learning they're learning how to manage their emotions so much is happening at the age of two. Yes. It is, a, it is a hard age for parents and kids. Um, so if you're a parent out there and you're listening and you have a two-year-old and you're in the trenches, you're going to make it. It's yeah. going to be okay. <laughs> um, well, we're almost, we're almost done here. This has been such a good conversation. And again, I'm so grateful that you're here to kind of share so much knowledge. I know there's probably plenty more that we don't know at this point, but we might just have to have you back for another one. <laughs> um, but just to kind of close it out, I want to know, you know, because you did make a switch into the feeding world, what has been just your favorite aspect of working on feeding with, um, with your little ones? Man, so much. <laughs> um, you know, I, I really like the challenge of feeding. I feel like we really have to be a pathologist with feeding. We have to find the root cause. I'm a, I'm a really big believer that kids don't just choose not to eat. They're not being bad. It's not a behavior. There's something going on that we need to figure out. So I love using like problem solving and talking to other professionals um, you know, I'm in home health, which can be really isolating. So I feel like that was another reason I wanted to get into feeding because it really forces you to connect with other professionals. You cannot be a feeding therapist team of one. It's just not possible. Um, so that's, you know, from a professional standpoint, that's what I like. But also from a parent empowerment standpoint, how many times do kids eat per day? You know, when they're toddlers, right. they eat five times a day, um, sometimes six. And when they're babies, they eat way more than that. So being able to facilitate a more positive relationship between parents and kiddos during mealtimes can really make a big impact on their life. Um, you know, if you're stressed out five times a day for you know, however long a mealtime lasts, that's a really big chunk of your day, not enjoying yourself and struggling with your child and the child's upset. And, you know, that can, if they're not eating well, that's going to carry over into other aspects of life. If they're not eating well, they might not be sleeping well. Um, they not, might not be going to the bathroom well. And so it's just a constant like domino effect um, that can impact so many areas of life. Um, so I think that's my favorite aspect is I'm not only working on feeding, but I'm also able to support their cognitive growth and their physical growth and um, building good relationships between parents and kids. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's my favorite. <laughs> I love it. 
Well, thank you so much for, again, all the information and for just um, be, I don't know, I just felt like this was not only informative and I am learning a lot from you, but it's also just, there's such a uh, positivity about the whole conversation, which I really appreciate. So thank you. Um, thank you for having me. Yes. Um, yeah. If anyone ever has questions or um, comments about feeding, um, please reach out to me. Um, mm -hmm. I love connecting with other people on Pediatric Dysphagia Island. Um, <laughs> First Bite is a really great podcast for all things feeding, feeding and dysphagia. Um, there's so many great resources. I'll, I, maybe I'll send you a list, Marie, yeah. that you can add of just a variety of resources yes. if people want to know more. No, absolutely. If you have links, but I would like to um, also direct them straight to you because um, I feel like you've one. I will put those links for sure. But um, I think it'd be great to if if anybody has any questions about what you said today, anything um, that they want a little bit more concrete information on, um, they can find you on Instagram. Correct. <laughs> You're so humble, <laughs> um, but I do. Uh, I do want to direct them there, and I'm going to put a link to your Instagram as well, so people can can find you. Um, I do. I love your Instagram. I was telling you before we started. You just always post such fun um, resources, and I I know there's a visual on there about core words that I just love, um, with just different ways that you can incorporate certain words and just all kinds of stuff. So it's a great uh, great. Thing you've got going there, Allison. And so we'll make sure they can find you. It's at ei.teletherapy, right? Okay. Correct. Yeah. I'll yeah, make sure. Don't tell Asha. They probably want me to change it to telepractice. Oh, gosh, I don't remember what they want us to say now. Telepractice. Telepractice. <laughs> teletherapy. I think that yep. the, thing, the nice thing about saying teletherapy, I think that's just like what seems to be the universal term. For sure. So we can all kind of remember, oh, teletherapy. Um, so. Definitely. You know, but yeah, we get tele telepractice. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Well, that is the end of this amazing learning experience for me and just conversation with another speech pathologist. I always value the times that I get to collaborate with speech pathologists near and far and learn some more things that I didn't know about the field I went to school for. So, Allison, thank you again. Friends, I do want to remind you that. Again, this was not direct medical advice. I always recommend, even for the families I work with, that they're always consulting with their pediatricians. So I definitely recommend if you have any concerns raised, make sure you're consulting with your pediatricians um, for their recommendations as far as your child's speech and language development and feeding development. I also wanted to make sure, I know Allison and I touched on the tongue tie conversation, um, and we did wanna make sure that you are aware that that is something that speech pathologists have some knowledge in and we can talk about, but we do not diagnose. So just make sure that you are, again, consulting with your child's pediatrician on the right ways to go about that and for diagnoses and things like that. Make sure you find Allison over at ei.teletherapy on Instagram. And, you know, you can find me at Thanks Morris. Also, friends, make sure that you go to my website if you have a suggestion or request for a podcast topic or if you want to be on the podcast or nominate somebody to be on the podcast, go to thanksmorris.com, find the podcast submission page and fill out the form and connect with me via email. Also, I'd appreciate it if you would review this episode or this podcast, uh, subscribe to it, download the episodes and rate. Um, that helps a lot. And I really do appreciate your feedback. It helps me 
it helps me grow. All right, friends, I hope you have a great day and I will talk to you next time. Bye.